Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Michelle Trico, co-founder and CEO of Airbyte, an open source data integration platform that's raised over $180 million in funding. Michelle, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks, you, Brett, for having me. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building there, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, of course. So I've always worked in the data industry. I started my career in 2007, been through different types of data, financial data, so medium scale internet scale data when I was uh, at Lyron, and that's actually when I moved in the US in 2011, and then more like IoT, self-driving car type of data. And yes, utilizing all this uh, experience I've built over the past 15 years to actually build Airbytes and resolve uh, a problem that is very, very real for companies, which is how they access data. And so I started Airbytes in early 2020 with my co-founder, John. And yeah, we've been at it since then, and we've had a pretty interesting journey there. Originally, I come from France, but yeah, I think at that point of my life, after living here for almost 12, 13 years, yeah, I can call uh, San Francisco my home. <laughs> <laughs> and a few things just to unpack there. What is it about the data industry that excited you to jump into it way back in 2007? And I'm, I'm sure the industry's changed a lot since then, right? Yeah, I would say it's Maybe it becomes a bit of a romantic story at that point. It's just from as far as I can remember, even as a kid, I've always had this habit of collecting things, whether it's books, whether it's movies, whether it's games, or whether it's just cool websites on the internet. And if you look at it, this is basically like holding data. And that's always something that's been with me. I like this idea that you have all these piece of raw data, and then by collecting it, you can start understanding what is the bigger picture behind this data. And you can start being smarter about what data you need to collect, where you need to collect it, how you need to access. And whether it's luck that my first job out of college was in data or not, I think I was always drawn to uh, I was always drawn to it. So, but that's the romantic version of the story. <laughs> <laughs> hey, come on. We, we like the romantic version. What about moving from France? How old were you when you made the move? It was in 2011. I was about 27, 27, actually. I was okay. 27. Okay, so you weren't too young then. So, you know, what was going through your mind at that point? I'm guessing you had started to establish a career at that point. So it wasn't like you were a like 19-year-old kid just moving to the U.S.? No, but actually, I've always wanted to come in San Francisco in the Bay Area. I've always been into technology. And for me, it was, this is where most of the technology is being created, is being innovated. And not to say that there is no other places where innovation is happening, but that's definitely a place where you have a huge concentration. And as someone who's passionate with technology and with data, that felt like a, a good place to be. And since I can remember, I've always wanted to move. I had a, a little, I did my internship at the end of college, it was in 2007. Uh, I was more in a, around Princeton, New Jersey, uh, working on medical imaging and medical data. But that was just for a year and a half. Went back to Paris and then finally went to, uh, to San Francisco. Nice. That's awesome. 
And as I'm sure you've read in the media and you probably hear from other people, there's a lot of noise out there today about the decline of Silicon Valley and San Francisco and the exodus of investors and entrepreneurs leaving Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. and San Francisco. Do you think that's true? Is that what you're seeing from your perspective? And what made you decide to stay here in the Bay Area? That's a good question. I would say every time something goes down, you have a lot of people who talk about how everything is actually going to be destroyed, not exist anymore. I feel like what is happening is that there's been a lot of extremely, extremely high growth over the past 10 years. And actually when COVID happened, it made this growth even stronger. And you can call it a bubble, you can call it whatever you want. There is always a point where the reality is catching up, but we should not discard that things that are being created are real. I'm just taking the Airbyte example. Companies need to use data. Company to remain competitive, they need to have data. So the software that is being created is software that brings value. And today, whether we want it or not, like there is still a huge pool of talent in the Bay Area. I mean, in many other uh, cities in the world, but there is still a huge pool of talent. There is still some capital. Just people don't know really what's going to happen with the the economy. So maybe they are just taking a step back, trying to see what's going to happen. And maybe they're a little bit doom and gloom, but people are still creating value. And from them, I wouldn't be so pessimistic. Nice. That's a super nice perspective to hear. Now, let's dive deeper into a couple of questions that we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick. So first one, what CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? I really like Bill Gates, to be clear. It's someone who has gone from being an extremely technical, talented person and managed to basically create one of the most valuable company in the world. So building something from nothing and getting into most computers in the world and just the personality of Bill Gates and you know, I'm a technical person and today I'm building a company. So in a way, I'm trying to see, okay, what are the things and when did in his career change the trajectory of him as an individual to go from writing code in basic in a small office to becoming the CEO of uh, one of the most powerful company in the world. Nice. That's a great call out. His evolution has been pretty wild to watch. You know, there's some of these old videos on YouTube when he was in his lawsuits, you know, back in like the, when was it, like the 80s or like the 90s? And the he, 90s was, yeah. <laughs> he was ruthless. He was very aggressive. You know, he, he was combative. It was you know, a very different Bill Gates than the man that you see on TV today. So yeah. it's cool to watch his transformation there. Do you take weeks off like him for as, um, what does he call him? His think weeks? So I have a family, so I have to take some weeks off for sure. Also, I want to, you know, one thing in the, in the startup is, you work extremely hard and you want to make sure that also people in at the company take the time to refresh, to, to think about like what is the next thing they want to do. Like innovation comes when you have time to think. So I take weeks off for myself, but also as an example for people at the company that it is okay to take vacation. Like you work a lot during the week, you work a lot during And like every single day, you need to take some rest at some point. Yes, it allows your brain to just process a lot of things that happen and to just have the time to look at what's coming next. Absolutely. What about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you? And this can be a business book or can also just be a a personal book that influenced how you view the world. I would say there is one book that 
really changed how it was when I made the change in my career between being full individual contributor, full uh, practitioner. At the time, I was at a, a company called LiveRamp. And I started to manage. Back in the day, it was a, a very small team and was just fortunate to go through the hyper growth of a company going from scrappy startup to IPO. And I had to figure out what does it mean to actually, at the time it was management, but what does it mean to actually lead people? And my CTO at the time just gave me that book from Andy Grove called High Output Management. And it's written by the former CEO of Intel. Mm -hmm. And although it's very focused on manufacturing of microprocessors and some of the examples, this book just made me understand what does it actually mean to lead a team? How do you evaluate yourself as a team lead, as a, someone who is managing and someone who is, who is here to really build uh, leverage uh, with a team? That was a, a transformative book for me because especially when you come from IC, it's a different job. It's not a promotion. You don't get promoted into a manager. It's just a fork in your career and understand what are the, the things that you've been doing in the past how do they change now that you're a manager? How do you evaluate yourself? And yeah, that was a transformative book for me. The moment I really embraced this idea that it was not the same job anymore. Yeah, it's such a great book. And a lot of guests that come on, they uh, they share that as their favorite book as well. So I've read it. I will have to say it's not the most fun and entertaining book. <laughs> it's really meant to be a tactical guide to to show you how to be a manager and a, a leader. I wouldn't say that you, know, you uh, just can't put it down because you're so excited and entertained every time you turn the page. <laughs> I, I, I was very excited when I was reading it. <laughs> you did? <laughs> but no, to be clear, it's also a book that every time I find like what I would call rising star at companies or that I meet, I is always the book I, I send. So if you look at my Amazon order list, it's probably the book I'm ordering the most and just <laughs> sending it to people. <laughs> yeah, I first heard of that book when I was reading an article in Fortune about Brian Chesky from Airbnb. And yeah. he had some learning approach called, like I think it was like going to the source or something like that. So he would just find the number one book that exists for whatever problem he was trying to solve. And then he would just read that book and master it. And that was the book that he had listed from Andy Grove. So it's a good uh, good call out and great book. Now let's switch gears and let's dive a bit deeper into Airbyte. So take me back to day one. Where did the company really come from? What's the story behind the company? And then we'll dive a bit deeper into the product. Yeah. So John and I met in uh, 2013 or 2012. And along the year, we tried a few side projects together, but he was in his own startup. I was at Playroom in Hypergrow. So it was very complex to both be amazing at what we were doing every single day, plus at the same time having this side project. So we had a few of these projects. I would not call them successful, but we actually, what happened is we learned how to work together. And we actually also built that, uh, that desire to be working together at some point. And in 2019, I actually left the company I was at and I really started to go on this journey of, okay, now I'm going to start a company. And I started to brainstorm by myself. I actually took a month of vacation before starting it, but I started to really brainstorm. And at some point I needed to have someone to run idea by. And uh, I asked John if he was interested in uh, just brainstorming with me. Maybe there was an agenda behind, but... Definitely, I needed to have someone to, to bounce ideas. And 
very quickly, as we were going through this, uh, through this brainstorm, it became clear that we had both built a pretty strong experience in the challenges of integrating data and making data accessible. And at the end of 2019, we actually applied to YC. We did not really have a product at the time, but we had a problem space that we were very familiar with. So we applied to YC with it that a very, very early idea. And yeah, January 2020 was really when we, we started the Airbyte. Back in the day, it was called Dextarity. It's a terrible name. <laughs> but yeah, we went through YC and our goal was really, we need to learn as much as possible about this problem space, more than what we know. And we just spend all of our day, nine, 10 hours a day, just on the phone, talking to data teams, talking to uh, data engineers, talking to marketing teams. We built an initial product at the time, but that was very dear to our marketing. At the time COVID happened, marketing was not the best field to be building a product in. So we pivoted in the first six months of 2020. And it's really in July 2020 that we settled on the idea of Airbyte, which is how do we break down companies' data silos? And how do we make it in a way that is extensible, that is future-proof? And that's one of the reasons why we went for open source as like one of the core things of our product. Yeah. And from then, we just released Airbyte end of 2020. And 2021 focused a lot on the first version of the product and building the community around Airbyte. And we also did the fundraising that you, you mentioned before. And 2022 was just, yeah, the product is becoming more mature. We're starting to think also about more repeatable monetization of Airbytes. And yeah, now in 2023, we have a team of 100 people. And yeah, we have a, a pretty good product, very strong community. I think we have about 90,000 deployments of Airbytes. And of this 90,000 deployment, we have 3,000 companies that are actually using Airbyte on a daily basis within their infrastructure. So pretty strong achievement for the past two years since we released Airbyte. Wow. Yeah, I would say so. That's uh, that's very, very incredible growth. So let's just look at that first number there, 90,000 people there in the community. How did you achieve that? You know, where did that community growth come from? Um, you know, what are some of those lessons that you learned along the way in building that? You have to invest massively in it. In terms of your time, in terms of the support that you're giving, we bootstrapped the community really between July 2020 and December 2020. We, because we were doing all these calls, we were keeping in touch with every single person that we were talking to, and we we're keeping them in the loop about what is the progress with Airbyte. Because whenever we are describing our idea behind Airbyte, they were just, yes, let us know what is available because we want to try it. And when we released it end of 2020, I would say the, I would almost call it a prototype. So it was barely working. We very quickly put our Slack up and we started to invite people on our Slack and we started to get people that were just downloading Airbytes, testing it and giving us a ton of feedback. And so the whole team, at the time, we were not that many, we were just maybe six people, seven people. We were just spending half of our time with the community and the other half of our time building Airbytes. But we really put a lot of time and a lot of effort there. We also published a lot of articles around what does it mean to build a company just for the community to understand where we were as a company, what was our DNA, 
And yeah, just for them to have that visibility into what we're doing, how we're behaving, how we're making decisions. And I think in a way that that transparency created a lot of trust between the Airby team and the community. And this is something we continuously are doing. I think recently I was on a, on Reddit and someone was saying something about the fact that Airbyte is the one place where they go when they need learning resources about data. Because we're putting a lot of articles out to just train data engineers to help data people to make better decisions on how they structure their data infrastructure, their data stack. So always about caring for the community and just always listening to what their pain are, where they are successful, and just double down on those. And where do you think that discipline you know, came from for you? Is that something that you just naturally understood? Did you hire some great marketing team members? Because where did that come from? And you know, the reason I ask is I just see a lot of companies out there who aren't really willing to invest in marketing that's not directly tied to their product. All they want to do is talk about their product and their capabilities and their features. You know, they don't really want to do this you know, top of funnel content that's goal is really just to educate their potential customers. So how did you develop that discipline within the company? Yeah, I think it's it probably comes from the founders and the early team, which is we've always had that mindset of bottom-up growth. You can almost say to an extent it's very a B2C approach on how we're thinking about B2B product, which is in the world of today, a lot of the decision is driven by the user and not the buyer. And when you're doing open source, what's happening is that you need to win the heart of the community. And from there, you cannot just say, okay, we're just going to do ads. That's not how it works. Like you need to engage with people and you need to engage personally with people. And because we were seeing open source as this is a very bottom-up way of building a product, of getting adoption, we just, it seemed very natural to do it this way. And I don't know if I have like a route as to why, but it's just, if you do bottom-up, it means that the people you're talking to are your users all the time. You're not talking to the buyer. You're talking to the user. You need to get them into the product. You need to love them to love the product. So then it's just become, how do you scale that process? How do you get them to, uh, to like you? And then is your sales process 100% PLG or is it sales assisted at some point? No, I mean, PLG is great. But there is always a point, especially as spending goes up, where people need to talk to a salesperson. So yes, I almost see PLG as something that happened before you talk to sales. It's almost like a filter where you will have a huge category of people who never need to talk to sales. And you need to make sure you can address those, especially with the motion of open source that we have. Like Open source, in a way, it's, it's a PLG motion, which is people download the software and they need to be successful without talking to you. So this PLG motion was already ingrained into the, the open source software. Now, when we did cloud, we thought about it the same way, which is how do we maximize our footprint in the data world? And not every company needs to talk to sales. So from there, we go for PLG, we go for sales serve, we make sure that the product shows its value as fast as possible. But then as people start to use the product more and more, they have a need that requires them to just spend more to uh, yeah to book more, then we go for a sales assist motion. 
And on the topic of open source, what would you say is the number one benefit that you've gained from being open source? And then what's been the greatest challenge because you are open source? The great thing you get from open source is that first, it works extremely well with the product that we are developing, which is we need to address an infinity of data silos. And when you're thinking about an infinity of data silos, you realize very quickly that it is impossible for one company to just address that infinity. And there will be edge cases that will not work with most people. And how do you make sure that someone who needs that edge case can still use the product? And from there, it became obvious that to scale our data connectors, we needed to actually involve the community, we needed to involve our users, and we needed to involve companies that are using Airbyte. So from there, open source was almost obvious. In terms of the challenges, I would say you're basically building two different motion, two different products, in the sense that when you do open source, the type of persona that you're talking to might be a little bit more ahead of the curve. They are more tinkering with open source or trying to solve the problem by themselves. And this is something that, yeah, we were able to leverage a lot, which is we were putting stuff out, we were explaining the, the golden path for how to use it, but people were just tinkering with it, discovering new use cases. When you start going more on the paid offering of Airbyte, the persona is changing a little bit, which is the expectation in terms of reliability, in terms of ease of use, go up quite fast. And for us, we had to basically retrain ourselves in 2022 in how do we just think about this reliability piece, this ease of use, and making it part of the product. And what's actually interesting is that it also beneficiates all the open source users, which is now the product is simpler to use, faster, more reliable. So that was something that we had to relearn in a way. Makes a lot of sense. And then something else I want to ask about, you know, I was reading about in the media how you were able to reach unicorn status within two years of launching, which is just insane and, and very impressive. So can you take us back to the day that that was finalized, you know, when you found out that you had built a unicorn, what did that feel like for you as a founder? I'm going to be very uh, brutally honest on this one, which is I've almost banished the word unicorn from my vocabulary. The way I see it is we've demonstrated that the model we were building, especially for the problem we're solving, was a massive disruptor for the industry. But the way I see that is not, I never see fundraising or like money that you get from investor as a milestone. I already see that as fuel to help you grow faster. And when I say big valuation, I don't see that as, okay, this is what we are now. Yes, it's, it's great to see that. It's a good number, et cetera, et cetera. But it's more a promise for the future. And we got the capital that we actually need to accelerate Airbyte and to get us to this level and to the next level. So it is great. But I think we should continue to keep our heads on building the best product and delighting uh, customers at that point. The rest is a bit of a distraction if you think about just, okay, yeah, now we're going to do big party with ton of cash and celebrating a 1.5 billion valuation. That feels unnatural. What's important is just building an amazing product, building an amazing team, and building an amazing community and customer experience. Yeah, and what you're saying there sounds very logical. I guess I just wonder, you know, how do you build that discipline internally? Have you just always had that much discipline or 
when yeah. you started to see the company growing like this, did you have almost like an internal talk with yourself to be like, hey, Michelle, keep it together, keep calm, keep focused on the business, don't let this be a distraction? Like, was that hard for you to do? Or is that just easy and totally natural for you to do? It is very natural for both John and I to do it. And, you know, soon after we, we raised our Series B, we managed to bring the whole team together. We were very distributed as a team. And we brought the whole team in, uh, in San Francisco. And at some point, someone was suggesting, oh, we should do a, a Series B celebration. And I was, no, we're not going to do a Series B celebration, but we're going to do a, a team is together after two years being in COVID celebration. This is what matters for the company. And I think people seeing that you should always celebrate. I mean, these are also victories, but they are not the goal. And I think it's what is important as founders is just making sure that people keep their eyes on the real goal, not on the this side accomplishment. Nice. I love that. And that's certainly very valuable advice for the founders who are listening today. Now, another question I want to ask about is your market category. So the first part of the question, what category does Gartner place you in? Is it the data integration category or what is the actual category from Gartner? Yeah, data integration is a good one. And I actually think it's the one we're being put in. We're trying to publicize more around data movement which is, it's not just about integrating data, it's about predefining the movement of data and the portability of data. But I think right now the category, yes, would be data integration. And that was my next question then. Are you, you know, content with that category that you're in? Because a lot of the founders that I speak to, you know, especially companies that are close to your sides, what they say is, you know, they're not happy with the category they're in. They don't feel that they belong in you know, the confines of the categories that Gartner places them in. And they're all about creating a new category and, and category creation. So what are your thoughts there? Do you plan on or are you currently working on creating a new category? Or are you going to really just move into you know, transforming this existing category and trying to you know, reposition it in a different way? Yeah, I think it's good that you put in a category in a way because you have less market education to do. Like people know what to expect. They understand the context. They understand what value you're, you're creating. Now, you should not let that to be the box in which you evolve. And if you realize that there are adjacent things or a longer time vision that makes the product even stronger and that can allow you actually to create a potential new category or to transform the existing one, then you should do it. And honestly, that's, Right now, it's okay for a label as data integration, but I think data movement is a stronger way to think about it because it has more, although the term is not completely fully formed or fully understood, it still has this concept of, it's more than just connecting to a data silo. You have a lot more around that. It's just how do you get company to exchange data in a smoother way? It's how do you make the data portable, like what kind of contract do you need to put on top of your data? What kind of quality, what kind of expectation you can have on, on top of data? And this is not so much in the data integration space, but I think for now it's okay. And we'll Make see how that evolves, but... Makes sense. Now, last couple of questions for you, since I know we're up on time here. What excites you most about the work you get to do every day? I mean, you know, there is one, we have a North Star metric at Airbyte that we, it's volume of data that we're moving, basically. And we have it separated between cloud and within open source. And the reason we picked that North Star metric is because it's not a vanity metric. 
It is synonymous with the value we provide to our customers and with our community. And this is something I really enjoy doing is finding these things that can rally the team behind something that seems like a very simple goal. There is complexity behind, but just keeping the focus of the team on this one thing that we're doing, which is this is the value we're bringing to our customers. And let's focus on it. The rest is vanity. The rest is a distraction. If we get the volume really high, then yes, revenue is here. Yes, the community is growing. And yes, we're building a, a valuable product. So just finding this little pocket of wisdom and just alignment for the team uh, is something I, I really enjoy. And I know you touched on it there when I was asking about the valuation status that you achieved and that you know there's a big goal that you're working towards that you don't want to be distracted from. So what is that big goal? Let's talk about you know like the three-year vision. What's that vision that you're racing towards and what are you building for? And that, that will go back to why the community is so important is you know, when you go and ask a software engineer, oh, you should start that project. The first thing they're going to be thinking about is, okay, I need to start my project on GitHub or I need to start my project on GitLab. So you have created a standard for what does it mean to do software engineering? We operate more on in the data space, but our goal in the next three years is establishing Airbyte as the moment you buy your warehouse, the moment you need to move data from one place to the next, it's clear in everybody's mind that the default solution is Airbyte. And yes, there will be other vendors here and there, but the default solution is Airbyte. You know, when you were looking 10 years ago as well, people wanted to do big data. The solution was, okay, we need to use Hadoop. And then it becomes, oh yes, we need to use Spark. It's just how it's about really becoming that standard so that it becomes weird to choose another technology. Nice. I love that. All right. Unfortunately, we are going to have to wrap here. Before we do wrap up, though, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, so two places. The first one is our Slack. We have a public Slack. Anyone can join it. We have links on our website, slack.airbyte.com. And everybody from the company is on the Slack. So you can talk to anyone at Airbyte. So I would say that's probably the best place to start. Amazing. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to chat, talk about what you're building and share this vision. This is all super exciting and look forward to having you back on again in the future to talk about everything that's happened. Wonderful. Thank you, Brett. All right. Thank you. Keep in touch. 